Good morning, Emmanuel family. This morning, we are going to be in the book of John. And I will admit, this is also what we are studying through in second service. And if I've ever felt woefully inadequate, it would be studying the book of John. I often question the quality of any Bible school that I attended years ago because there's a whole lot more than they ever taught me. Our verses this morning are going to be John chapter 1, 1 through 5, but before we get there, just to let you know that I've broken it up into, we'll say, three main headings. First one will be Jesus, the eternal word is God. Jesus, creator of all, and Jesus, source of life. Before we begin, though, a little bit of an introduction might be helpful. I've got, I think we're in, in second service, we are in John 1, 42 to 51, 11 weeks later, and I probably have 30 plus pages of notes already. And I had at least two of the first were just in the introduction. So I didn't want all those notes to go to waste. One of the things that I had came across is a quote that is often generally um, attributed to Augustine. And that is the idea that John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. We talked about that a little bit weeks and weeks ago when we started the introduction in John um, as we're studying through that. And I will admit that this has been my challenge throughout these weeks. The idea of its simplicity and the idea of its complexity. Simply complex. It gets challenging. And I love analogies. I make analogies up at work all the time. Between dad jokes and analogies, um, those are my things. So I came up for an analogy for the book of John. And here it is. I'm not saying it's a good one. We've all seen those news stories, right, with flooded streets, right? The kids are out playing in ankle-deep water. You know, the parents, and you see the crazy people with the cars driving the little, you know, towing somebody behind in a sled, right? And so that's the shallowness. That's the simplicity of it. But then you get the guy that's walking along, and he's standing on the curb, and he goes to jump into the water, only to find that he has landed in the water, waist or potentially neck deep. Whichever it is, who knows, right? And so that's the book of John in many occasions. You can go through in the simplicity of a lot of the things that then find yourself, and this was, was even for John 1, 1 through 5 that I taught weeks ago, I spent probably another 14 hours just getting ready to stand before you because I wasn't comfortable with it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig into John 1, 1 through 5 with that background. But I want to present this um, using a, a few commentaries to help me along, Kostenberger, Carson, a couple others. I did pull Kostenberger's quote, though, out of um, his commentary in regards to the introduction of John. And he says, John's gospel, together with the book of Romans, may well be considered the enduring twin towers of New Testament theology, soaring, to change metaphors, as an eagle over more pedestrian depictions of the life of Christ. Very possibly written by John the Apostle as the culmination of his long life and ministry, critical in postmodern objections to the gospel's apostolic authorship notwithstanding. He said that. 
The gospel penetrates more deeply into the mystery of God's revelation in his son than the other canonical gospels and perhaps more deeply than any other biblical book. From the majestic prologue to the probing epilogue, the evangelist's words are as carefully chosen as they must be thoroughly pondered by every reader of his magnificent work. I like that. I really quite liked his statement on that. In fact, I was telling uh, our second service, our small group of folks that attend second service, that the Apostle Paul had historically always been my favorite apostle, right? Just always the case. But boy, as I started digging into John, his brilliance has sucked me into a respect for John. Clearly not over Christ, but I have a newfound respect for the Apostle John. And so there is more introductory that we could do and that we could address. We could review through the evidence within the gospel that supports the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved as author. We could review various scriptures throughout John that support the idea of a broader audience of Jews, but certainly the gospel is not without an understanding of the Greco-Roman audience that he was also writing to. And because of this more universal audience, we could find occasions where John pulls in both audiences with Greco-Roman aspects while still pulling in Old Testament references, pulling in his Jews. He's brilliant in many occasions. That is my finding. We could talk about the structure of the prologue a little bit more. The idea that the prologue from 1 all the way through verse 18 is profoundly introductory to a lot of the other gospel and introduces countless, not really countless, but a lot of theology. But we're not going to get any farther than that. I want to leave you with one primary thing. And that primary thing, if you turn to John chapter 20, Verses 30 and 31, this is the backdrop that I think in many occasions help us as we read through the Gospel of John to use this as the backdrop of why things are the way they are in the book of John. He says in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I don't doubt it that there's so much more that Christ did that are not in there. You see in the entire book of John about 11 miracles, give or take, right? But the entire book written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Albeit that is the stated purpose of the book, being an evangelistic one, I made a word up, the theological richness and depth of the gospel serves greatly as both evangelical and as a source of spiritual growth in Christ Jesus to those who come to this book the first time or again and again as one already saved. So let us dive in this morning to our text. I never practice in a mirror, so I don't know how long this will take. It could be brief or it could be long. And I don't mean that to say to threaten you, but I've got quite a few pages of notes. And uh, it's just sometimes I never know. I think the, the Christmas one, I had like nine pages of notes and we moved pretty good. So it sort of depends on what the good Lord does. So 
what I'm going to do first is let's go to the Lord in prayer because both the fact that I often feel woefully inadequate, but what we want to ensure is God is glorified in either way as we hear, as we're good hearers of the word and um, let him bless the time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, in the midst of our trials and tribulations in the difficult days, Lord, I would pray that you would settle our hearts and minds, that we would hear a word from you, that you would be glorified. You would be glorified in our understanding and our encouragement in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I would pray that, um, give me clarity of mind, clarity of thought, help us to be good hearers of your word, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to start out, I told you I mentioned three general broad topics, and we're going to, I broke them down, verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 1, and then I took verse 3 as by itself. Um, that is the way I took it. You can go to different places, and 3 and 4 sometimes gets pulled in together. I stood verse 3 by itself, and then... I'm going to take us home with verses 4 and 5. But to start, I'm going to read through, not the whole prologue, although I have read it through probably a hundred times just in the last few weeks in preparation. I love the prologue. But we're reading 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We'll talk briefly, but we'll see that uh, verse 2 is sort of a repeated statement to solidify, to emphasize uh, verse 1. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to also see how I believe there was a shift in verse 4. And we'll talk through that once we get there. But to start out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verses 1 and 2. John wastes no time diving into the pool from the very beginning. He is the guy that was standing on the curb and jumped into the water and went neck deep right away. In one basic sentence, he sets the stage with critical doctrinal truths about Jesus Christ. For the first time reader of this gospel, what I just communicated as an assumption that John is referring to Christ comes from verse 14 we're assuming we've all read through this most of us and we know that the verse 1 and 2 is connecting itself as you read through the prologue it connects back all the way down to 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth Reading on, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not until the end of the prologue does John say, This is who I'm speaking of. We're making an assumption, so the entire rest of this message on John 1, 1 through 5, that assumption is made. I'm not here to evidence that that's the case. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that John is speaking about. But there's two primary truths here in these first couple verses um, under this first heading, and that is that, one, Jesus is eternal, and two, Jesus is God. So, we will begin with 
the truth that Jesus is internal, is eternal. The verse starts out in verse 1, in the beginning was the word Jesus, and the word was with God. John's Jewish, Jewish audience should have recognized the parallelism. I wrote that word down and then thought to myself, can I get it out when I'm preaching it? But I got it out. There's one. Someone keep track for me. The parallelism to the Old Testament with John's opening three words. Those words are, in the beginning. Sound familiar? Turn to Genesis chapter 1. The very beginning of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The parallelism, there's one out, I'm one for one. The parallelism to the creation account in Genesis brings us back to the time when the universe, or space, time, and matter as we understand it now, was not existent yet in the beginning. So when we start out in Genesis, in the beginning, and then John begins in his gospel, in the beginning was the word. What he's saying is in the beginning, at the time of creation, Jesus was there. And it says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Not at the point that creation was made, but at the point that creation began. Jesus was there. And so if God and Jesus were there at the point of creation of the idea of space, time, and matter as we, ex as we understand it and see it today in the form of the universe, they are not created and are eternal. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In John's gospel, instead of in the beginning, God created... We encounter in the beginning was the word. So the idea of in the beginning, God created. So now we see John in the beginning was the word, the word being Christ. So at that point, Jesus was already in existence. To them, it conveyed, excuse me, in the beginning was the word. So prior to creation, the word existed. Prior to the word manifesting in the flesh, as we see in verse 14, he existed prior to creation. And to exist prior to creation, he would have had to have existed apart from creation. He was not created, but always had existed through eternity past. For most probably sitting here, you're probably thinking, yep, we know this. I'll have a couple applications at the end because, again, it is a wonderful reminder of who our Savior is. The term a reference to Jesus as the Word or Logos, as we see in that very first part of the verse, in the beginning was the Word, which is the underlying term, was used widely in the Greco-Roman world. To them it conveyed the idea of of the impersonal, rational principle of the existence of everything. That Greco-Roman thought, right? It is quite possible that John was intentional in using a term that could be understood in their context, but also in the context of the Old Testament. Sort of that dual potential meaning or idea there which the Jews would or should have recognized for us however the more compelling understanding of Jesus being presented as the word is the Old Testament connection that it conveys 
and quite frankly, I perceive more strongly aligns with the immediate context of verse 3. And it aligns with John's use of Old Testament quotes or allusions to the Old Testament throughout his entire gospel. I'm not going to discount the fact that John could have had in his mind the use of Logos to pull in his Greco-Roman audience. At the same time, the idea of Logos or word to connect to his Jewish audience at the very onset of his gospel. But I'm more inclined to think that the stronger connection exists with the allusion to the Old Testament. I don't want to discount the other, because like I said, as I've studied more and more the book of John in depth, I'm quite fond of, of, of the genius that God gave John. I say God gave John that. I struggle just to write something halfway coherent, let alone throw dual meaning into half of everything I write. Let's take a look at some of that Old Testament connection with the idea of the word. And it connects with God's powerful activity in creation and his self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. In the Old Testament, God simply spoke creation into existence. He spoke and his power was manifested. The idea of God's spoken word, the word. Genesis, flipping back to Genesis 1, easy to find. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and I'll even look at, say, for example, verse 9. In 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out with, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He said it. You go on, verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God spoke, and his power was manifested. We can also see in Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The idea here is, again, the idea of the word. We can look at it from the idea of logos, that the Greco-Roman world, from more of the impersonal perspective, but I still think John clearly had in mind the Old Testament reference to the idea of God's self-expression through the spoken word and his power manifested through that. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 55 as another example. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. MacArthur says of this, as the rain and the snow cannot fail to nourish the earth, so God's word of promise cannot fail to bring his people into the richness and fullness of eternal life. God's promises, promises succeed 
And the word of God not only describes a glorious future, it is God's appointed means to create that future. I would suggest that it may be proper to understand John's purpose of presenting Jesus as the word is desiring to connect with both his Jewish audience and his Greco-Roman. But after having studied, as I've already mentioned, I'm inclined to find a stronger case that the many possible connections to the Old Testament, however, and this, it is about Jesus Christ in the end. Whether he was connecting with the Greco-Romans or he was connecting the Old Testament, it's about Jesus we flip to John chapter 17, 17, 5. We'll come back here in a few to John chapter 17, but I wanted to read John 17, 5. It says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you, before the world existed. So this idea of Jesus being eternal is the idea that Jesus shared his glory with the Father before the world existed. Evidencing that Jesus is eternal was there before creation started, before the world existed, And this idea that the eternal word is the self-expression of the power and the salvation and the glory of the Lord Jesus. John uses the word to describe Jesus Christ. Jesus was in the beginning, existing prior to creation, and he was with God But this verse presents a second critical truth, and that is that Jesus is God. John presents us with the first look into the doctrine of the Trinity. It was not enough for John to say that the eternal preexistent word was with God, as he was, but that he was also God. We start right out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts out waist deep right from the very beginning, like no other gospel. What the other gospels potentially take their entire time to the end to get to, and some not even in their entirety, John addresses in the very first couple verses of the book of John. Jesus is God. Of all the Gospels, John is most direct and forthcoming with presenting Jesus as God and setting the stage early for the divinity of Christ. The Word, who has always existed, was God and was with God. The one true God consists of of more than one person, that truth is revealed here, and has always existed in distinct relationship with the Father. Going back to John 17, grabbing a little bit more of that verse, starting back at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
is important that I read that because I want to make this connection. Jesus' statement in verse 17, 1, glorify your son, is a claim to deity as God. And as stated in Isaiah 42, 8, anybody's writing it down, don't want to take the time necessarily to be brief. Isaiah 42, 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. So here we have in John chapter 17, Jesus say, return the glory to me that I had with you before the world existed. We see scriptural evidence that says God gives his glory to no other. We also see that in Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you. I am not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it for how should my name be profaned, my glory I will not give to another. So here we have the Lord saying he will not give his glory to another. And Jesus in John chapter 17 saying, return the glory that exists that I had with you and the Father before the world existed. It's a Jesus' claim to deity as God. We see the idea of the Trinity Jesus eternally existed, he was with God, and John says he was God. The Christ of the Gospels, oftentimes when we read the Christ of the Gospels, how often do we lose sight when we read the story of the Gospel of the various trials and tribulations of things with Jesus, do we lose sight? That our Savior that came down and dwelt among us, took on flesh and died on the cross, is the very Savior that is God. It's easy to read through the various Gospels and sometimes lose sight of the fact that it's God incarnate. John chapter 1, verse 14, Emmanuel, God with us. We read these stories of Jesus and the miraculous things he did. And how often on a daily basis do we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is God. Full authority on heaven and earth. But it becomes a greater reminder as we move into our second main heading And I'm pulling that from John chapter 1, verse 3. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. After asserting that Jesus is God, and that he was eternally preexistent in the Godhead with the Father, a further truth is presented by John that evidence is Jesus's divinity in action. Important to understand that this verse is asserting that everything that was made was made through Jesus, and John is not the only place in scripture we can find this truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 and 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are as many gods and many lords, small g, small l, 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And the Lord, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Moving on to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm going to come back to that idea of the firstborn of all creation. I want to clear up any confusion that could make. The firstborn of all creation, for by him are all things, excuse me, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That is all things. On heaven and earth, everything created, there was nothing created that was not made by him in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and before, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a powerful God we serve. And I said I was going to touch on this as an aside to clear up any question that may have arisen when I read the part that said specifically the firstborn of all creation. In this verse, the reference to the firstborn of all creation cannot and should not be taken to mean the physical idea of Christ being created. Think back, and we won't dig too deep, just briefly, think back to the Old Testament traditions. It was the firstborn son that was to be the heir of the father's inheritance. And so, this is how we should understand Colossians here. We see that idea more clearly in Hebrews. So again, the idea of the firstborn of all creation is not saying that Christ was created. He was the first person to be born. It is saying that when you connect that idea to the Old Testament, the son is the heir of everything. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. So that one verse in Hebrews 1 shows that the idea of Christ was the heir of all things, And everything was created through and by and for Christ in one verse. But I wanted to present that so nobody went, hmm. We ran into something very similar, a different topic uh, on our second, second teaching. And Brother Marlin fantastically brought it up. And I went, it wasn't this, it was something else. I went, ooh, I don't know. That's sort of a conundrum for me right now. So I didn't want to create a conundrum with the idea of the firstborn of all creation. He's the heir of all things. Everything and everyone owes its existence to Jesus. John's restatement of the negative in verse 3. Again, the restatement of the negative. He says, all things were made through him. There's the positive. And without him was not anything made that was made. I can't wonder how many times I've done that as a parent. You state the positive, then you state it in the negative. But the idea is this serves to emphasize strongly that there is nothing apart from God that Christ did not create and does not sustain by the word of his power according to Hebrews 1. So Jesus is eternal, and Jesus is God, and Jesus is creator 
of all. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the immutable, unchangeable, founder of the heavens and earth by whose hands all things were created and whose years will have no end. There is therefore no argument about the superiority of Jesus Christ, for he is not only superior to angels, but he is superior to all things, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. He is God, and they are his servants. He is the creator, and they are his creatures. We are his creatures. He is infinite and we are finite. He has no beginning and no end. We have a beginning and, Lord willing, no end with him. When one considers that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, dwelt among us, was tempted as we are, yet was without sin, and that he came, or excuse me, he can empathize with our struggles He died on the cross as a ransom for his own and that he is also the very one that gave us life, our creator and our redeemer. Such a full rounded understanding such as this of who Jesus was should humble us, shouldn't it? It was just not a man created to come and pay the price for our sin. He is God, self-existent, self-reliant, the creator of all things, heaven and earth, who, according to verse 14, dwelt among us in flesh. And how many times do we lose sight of that when we read the stories of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he is God? It's going to bring us to our last main topic Jesus, the source of life. We saw earlier how John paralleled the opening of his prologue with the opening of Genesis creation story with in the beginning. Well, we see a few more references consistent with the opening creation story account. I believe John uses these parallels to introduce some terms that he will further progress throughout the Gospel of John. John, where we are right now, John 1, verses 4 and 5, says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is, Jessica came in, Came into the office yesterday while I was working on this. She said, hey, how's it going? I'm like, I'll be for hours longer. She said, what? Thought you had, basically, she said, I thought you had all these notes, and I do, and I got stuck. I was the guy that went from the curb and jumped into the water and found myself as I read neck deep. For some reason, even though we talked about it on Sunday weeks ago, I got stuck. This is where I got stuck in him was life. And the life was the light of man. I got stuck there this time, even though I had notes. But I think I've settled. I'm, I'm internally, my conscience is feeling better as I dug into this greater. But here's, we're going to do this first. We're going to unpack verse 4 a little bit. If verse 4 is a continuation of the truth that Jesus is the creator of physical life. Remember, we talked about Jesus is the creator of all things physical. And the idea that in him was life, in the opening of four, then I believe, I believe it can be challenging to understand the rest of four. The rest of four says, and the life was the light of men. I perceive we begin to see sort of a dual or secondary meaning or a shift presented that John will mature upon and throughout his gospel. I believe verse 4 is a shift. 
to more of a symbolic idea going forward. And so why do I say that? Let's look at John chapter 3, verse 15. John chapter 3, verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 5, 24. I've got some examples. And what I'm going, and what I'd like to say is, there are multiple uses of the, of the word for life in the book of John. I believe it comes up 36 times in 32 separate passages in John. And every single one of those forward, the reference is not to physical life, but spiritual life. John 5, 20, 24. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John chapter 17 that we've already read, verses 1 through, 1 through 3, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only, excuse me, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Based on the development and use of the idea of the references to life going forward in the book of John, I believe here in the prologue we see a shift from the idea of physical creation, although it does not discount the fact that Christ was the creator of physical life, I think we see more of a symbolic movement to the idea of spiritual life. And I think as we move forward in 4 and 5 with the idea of light and darkness, I think that helps us see that it is a bit of a shift to the idea of spiritual. If we look at Genesis 1, 1 through 5, again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We see in Genesis the idea of light and darkness, and even the idea of life, where God, Christ, had taken the chaos of nothingness and created physical order. I personally believe what John is doing is beginning in verses 4 and 5 of John 1, beginning to present the idea of eternal life. We're moving away more from a physical, and I think the idea of light and darkness that we see in verses, the rest of 4 and 5 that say, the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, helps us understand that as a spiritual light and darkness that is, although reminiscent of the terminology we see in Genesis, we now see it start to unfold in Christ Jesus, eternal life, the idea of light and darkness, good and evil, starting to be presented in the prologue that as you read through the rest of the book of John, all the references to life are eternal life. I believe it. Looking at verse 5 helps clear up that up for us, and we see that there is a shift, and the light of men is the eternal life where Christ is the giver of that life. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We have more than one example in the Old Testament that reflects the idea of light and darkness from a spiritual perspective, not a physical light and darkness as we saw in Genesis. But we also see in Genesis chapter 1, the light was good. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. If I don't recall, I do believe uh, December 24th, this is part of the scripture that we heard for the Christmas Eve message even. The people who walked in darkness, they're not in Alaska in December where it's dark. Clearly not a reference to walking in the dark. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That is not a picture of people walking at night and then day breaks and there's the sun, the great light. This is a spiritual reference to where they were, disobedient to the Father, walking in their sin, and a prophecy of the coming Christ. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. We can also see in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. Is this really a physical dungeon? From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Here in these Old Testament verses, clearly, these refer to light and darkness from a spiritual sense. If you recall from a few weeks ago, like I said, Isaiah 9, the people were walking in sin. They were disobedient to God. They were in darkness. And the land they dwelled in was in darkness. And we find a prophecy regarding a coming Savior. We see the same idea in further developed in the book of John. For example, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. First John, we're going to stay in Johannine. I love that word. I can't necessarily get it out all the time. Johannine writings, but first John chapter 1 verses 5 through 7. We can see John do the same thing from the idea the idea of spiritual life, spiritual light, spiritual darkness not physical. We see a shift in John chapter 1, 4, and 5 to symbolize the spiritual. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says, this is the message we we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, goodness, right? And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Clearly then, these verses are referencing more of a spiritual life. So that when we look back at verse 4, it would have seemed more clear the shift from the physical creation in 1, 1 through 3 to the spiritual or the moral. In him is life. In Jesus is spiritual life. And that life is the light of Christ, our only source 
of spiritual life. And so the light of Christ shines in the darkness. Shines into the darkness or the sinful lives of man in the darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcoming. If you turn to John chapter 12. We see that exact same idea of darkness and the idea of overtaking or overcoming. For some of you, if you have New King James, King James, the word I think there is understand or comprehend. I would suggest that whether it be understand or comprehend, either way, there's not a significant change in meaning. Although I do prefer, actually, in this case, uh, ESV and the use of of overcome because I think John chapter 12 verses 35 and 36 we can see that and so John 12 35 and 36 says so Jesus said to them the light is among you for a little while longer who is the light Jesus Christ while you have the light less darkness overtake you The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So that whole idea of darkness not overtaking is what we see here in the very beginning of John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The truth, the spiritual life and the truth of Jesus Christ as eternal as the Father or as God and as creator of all shines in and darkness does not overcome it. What we should understand from this last verse is one of a couple applications I have for you. I wish to leave you with And that is that the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Looking ahead to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the one true light, and as much as there were those that hated him and did their best to stop him, Jesus was decisively victorious. The darkness did not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, the saving work of Jesus Christ, and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the light shining into a lost and a dying world. But while it is still light, before Christ returns a second time, there is still opportunity to respond to the gospel message. That if you confess Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead for your sins and you repent, you will be saved. But do not take for granted anything more than the very minute you're sitting here looking at me. We do not know the hour that he will return, nor do we know the days that are numbered for us here on this side of heaven. Graveyards are full of unrepentant sinners. They had no idea one minute to the next their hour had come. The world is full of teenagers that think they have a whole life ahead of them. For those that have been born again believers and followers of Christ, I hope you will be reminded as I was that Jesus Christ who lived a perfectly sinly life as fully man was also fully God. He is our creator and our sustainer. We serve a mighty and victorious Lord Jesus who can sympathize with every one of our weaknesses, yet is our very creator 
and knows us better than we know ourselves. There is nothing that can escape his knowledge and sovereignty. And remember that all things work to the good for those who love him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the reminder and as we can go back to those verses over and over again, over and over again, they can be in an encouragement or we can better understand something new that we didn't understand before. Let us walk away with the reminder that, one, for anyone that has not bowed the knee and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that they would turn to you, and Lord, recognize their sinfulness and the need for a Savior. And for those of us who have given our lives to you, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and reminded that the Jesus who dwelt among us was also the Jesus that created all things, is the source of all life, physical and spiritual. Lord, let us be encouraged, let us be strengthened, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.